Okay, before we talk about hope, let's talk about parking. Uh, you know, somebody remarked on their way in this morning, says, why is the church doing this with the parking? Uh, we, don't, we don't own the parking lot. I wish we did. That'd be awesome. So we don't own it. But here, in theory, is the way it's supposed to work. And it's working for a lot of people. So if this is not your experience, we want to make it your experience. You should be able to drive in and drive out without touching anything. Not touching your phone, not touching a pay station, not touching a ticket. Of course, there's no tickets anymore. Not touching anything. You should drive and drive it. If that is not your experience, please go to the guest services table right outside that door there. And we are going to work hard to make it your experience. Okay? So right outside that door, guest services, that table. When the service is over, you don't have to get up and do it right now unless you're upset. And you can go out there and you can take, you know, you can take care of everyone. Okay? Very good. All right, now let's talk about hope. I really don't like false hope. I just want to say that right up front. I don't like when somebody says, hey, you can trust me, and you can't. All right. I guarantee it, and it's not guaranteed. When I got out of college, I worked all kinds of little odd jobs in addition to working to UPS. I worked for UPS a while, and then, then when I left there, I worked all kinds of odd jobs because I was working for a very, very small church. One of the things I did was I started a small business. And we looked at doing some advertising. And I met with a, a salesperson about this advertising. And here's what they said to me. He said, I guarantee it that if you advertise the program they put together, if, if you advertise me, you will definitely, I guarantee it, I guarantee it. Again, that's the word I stuck on. You'll get 30 calls. 30 calls. So I said to them, I said, now you're guaranteeing I'm going to get 30 calls? Because 30 calls have been a big deal for us. We're going to get 30 calls? They said, yeah, you will get 30 calls. I said, okay. And with that word of guarantee it, okay, we did it. You know how many calls we got? Three. Zero. 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 Why am I telling that story? I don't like false hope. I don't want to hype you up. I don't want to say, I guarantee it today. You know, just believe this story. Because at the end, I'm going to ask you to hope again. Now, maybe you're still hoping for something. Maybe you're praying for something and you still feel hope for it. Or maybe your hope is really running low. Like your hope is on life support. Like it's barely beating. Right? It's barely beating. Okay. Or maybe it's just like stone cold dead. It's in the tomb. It's over. You've locked that door. I'm not going back there again because you don't have hope. And at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you to hope for something again. And that thing I might be asking you to hope for. It's whatever important. I don't know what it is. It's something that's important to you. That's what I'm going to ask you to hope for. Not something that I suggest. I'm just going to ask that you hope for something again that's important to you, to each one of you. And that might be hard for some of us, and I need you to know that the story I'm going to tell you today is a story that's based in historical fact. It is a verified historical truth. What I'm talking about today actually happened. It happened when there was no hope. It was impossible to happen. There's no way it's going to happen. It's over. It's stone cold dead, and yet it has happened. So I just want to say today, the thing I'm talking about today is based in historical facts. So that we're not just dealing with some kind of hype, okay? So that's where we're going today. On the Edge of Hope is the title of today's message. This city that we're going to talk about today that was desolate, was destroyed, was hopeless, comes back to life. God loves to bring things back to life. What does that city have to do with you? It's representative of your life. In a symbolic way in the Bible, it is representing your life or my life or your family, your dreams, your hopes, on and on it goes. This is what we're going to do today. God in the Bible is very famous for love, but because of God's great love, the thing he's most famous for 
God brings dead things back to life. Now, we got some jars here, and I want to explain it, because maybe you're new today, and you're like, oh, well, that's a nice decoration they have up there. This is the only time we've had it here, and here's the reason why we have this. Um, in the city of Jerusalem, the only thing left of the temple that you read about in the Bible is a wall, and we call it the Western Wall. It's also called the Wailing Wall. It's a very sacred place. People come from all over the world to stand at that wall, at this sacred place, the only thing left of the temple, to pray. Some of them pour their heart out to God. Some people are angry. Some people are asking for God to remember them. Some people are asking for God to bring world peace, whatever. People are asking for a lot of different things. But people come from all over the world. And I've been to that wall many, many, many times. I've been to Israel three different times. And every time I go there, I've gone to the wall multiple times. We have recreated the wall. There's two walls over here. Looks very similar in some ways to the wall in Jerusalem. There's two of them here and there's two of them over here. What we did on the first week of the series is we asked people according to the book of Lamentations because Lamentations is an outpouring of emotion. It's about a city that's destroyed, lives that are destroyed, dreams that are destroyed and people are angry, people are hurt, people are wounded, people's lives have been forever changed. And so what Lamentation shows us is this great outpouring of emotion. There's not theology in the book of Lamentations. As you're looking for theology, you've come to the wrong place when you consider the book of Lamentations. Because it's more biology than theology. It's like neurobiology because it's just all this emotion just comes gushing out. And what we said at the beginning, again, just a very scientific truth. If you hold stuff in, like if you don't express it, but instead you suppress it, not only is that going to affect you in the Bible spiritually, but it's going to affect you mentally and emotionally and for sure physically. You have got to let it out. So what we asked people to do in week one was to write their hurt, their pain, their suffering, their frustration, their confusion on pieces of paper and to put it into the wall. And I stood up here and I did it because I shared something that really frustrated, confused, made me angry, a, a whole string of those emotions. And I just wrote, 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 put it on a piece of paper took that wall over there and put it in. All of these papers represent so much pain and suffering. And that's why they're here. Now we put some light inside of them because God can take dead things and bring them back to life. At the end of this service, the prayer team's gonna gather around these jars. Anybody's welcome to come, you know, four or five minutes after the service is over. And they're gonna pray because these represent a lot of hurt and pain. And we're gonna ask God to do something incredible. Now, in addition to that, we have put pieces of paper that are on all the chairs and the back of the seat backs in front of you. Because in addition to that today, we want to hope again. There's something that you're hoping for. I hope there's something you're hoping for because it's very difficult to live without hope. Something you're hoping for, some prayer request, something you've brought before God, right? What I find is almost every single person in this world prays. People that go to church, people that don't go to church. Matter of fact, I read a report that people who don't go to church actually pray more than people who do go to church. So basically almost all people, almost all people are praying all around this globe. Something you're praying for and to just pour it out on this piece of paper. To fold it up and to stuff it into one of these walls at the end of this message day. So please be prepared for that. That's why I wanted you to hear me say that I just don't like false hope. I'm going to talk about something that historically is true. So here we go. Lamentations. We're in the last chapter. It's Lamentations chapter 5. Every single one of these chapters has been a poem. Lamentations 5, different. It is a prayer. It's a communal prayer. It's a very interesting prayer. Here's how it begins. Lamentations 5.1. Remember, Lord, 
what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. There, there is a big association between shame and suffering. Shame and suffering, okay? That's what's being spoken of here. But what I really want to draw your attention is right here. Remember. Remember. That's how it begins. Remember us, Lord. Remember us. Did God forget them? Now look how the chapter ends. At the end of the chapter, an interesting juxtaposition here. In chapter 5, verse number 20, it says this. Why do you always forget us? Remember how it said, remember us, Lord? Well, this is how the chapter ends. You always forget us. Why do you forsake us so long? Oh, God, what is going on? Like, why are you forgetting us? You, you, you've forgotten us? We're praying and the heavens are shut. There's devastation all around us. We're praying. We're pouring our hearts out. Some of us feel that way here this morning. Like we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Nothing's happened. Matter of fact, some of us prayed and prayed and prayed. Things got worse. Like, what is going on? That's this chapter. God, remember us. You always forget us. You always forget us. I just believe, I've actually spoken to some people this morning who have been in the first two services. Like, oh my, God had me here today because I, I needed to hear that. So I've got to believe that there are those of us here in the room right now that God really wanted you to be at this service today because your hope, this prayer, whatever is on your heart that you've been praying for, you've been struggling through, God's like, I needed you, I needed you to hear this today. This Lamentations chapter five is an amazing, an amazing chapter. And I want to break this down if I can. Now there's an eerie similarity between what's happening in Lamentations and Washington, DC. Okay? Look at what verse number three says. Verse number three says, We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. What is that speaking to? It's speaking to the family unit. The family unit has completely collapsed. And when the family unit collapses, hope collapses. Some of us have come from very messy families and we know what it's like. I come from a messy family and we know what it's like to have that collapse. Well, the basis, like that, the foundation of this family unit, like when, when, the, when the Bible, when it all begins, like when God begins to speak to us in the Bible, God doesn't give us a nation. God doesn't give us a political party. God doesn't give us a political system. God gives us a family. It's the basis of hope. And when that relationship falls apart, so it all starts with Abraham and Sarah, a family. I say this all the time. If Grace Community Church is anything, it's a family. It's a family. What do families do? They're really messy. But if love is at the center, like God is supposed to be at the center of a family. If love is at the center, in the midst of all of our disagreements and our, our, our radically different beliefs and all of our problems and all of our pain, if love is at the center, we will actually give mercy, we'll give grace, we'll listen to understand, not listen to respond. You know, you know what I mean? You know the big difference. How many conversations have you been in and like you're telling your side and that person, oh man, you can just see the words are right there behind their teeth. They just want, they're ready to respond. They're not listening to understand. They're ready to give you a verbal attack. Well, in families, if there's truly love, we listen to understand and we compromise and we give mercy and we give grace. But the family unit has broken down and that is the basis. That relationship is where hope is found in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. Now, a lot of us think that money brings hope. A lot of us think, oh man, if I can get just enough money, oh man, I'll feel great, I'll feel hopeful. And then we get the money and we don't have hope. Listen, if, if money brings hope, you're in the perfect city, everybody. Like this is, this is the epicenter of money. You look at the top 10 counties in America, five of them are right here. Washington, D.C., for as far as median household income, we are it. And we have got the money. But do we have the hope? I've said this often. 
D.C. is the loneliest city on the face of the earth. So in other words, money doesn't seem to lead to hope. There's a lot of brokenness here. And, and what do people do in a lonely city? Where do they live? They live alone in a lonely city. The city that leads the nation in living alone is Alexandria. Close on its heels and riding fast, coming up on the corner, is Arlington County. Like, we're just going like we're straight up. Relationships. What they're saying is our relationships collapse, and that's what suffering does to a lot of families. You know that? So when families experience just like a terrible breakdown and suffering, a lot of times instead of pulling together, that family pulls apart. This is what is happening to this family. Now, verse number seven, extremely important. Look what they say. This, this, this has to be said by all of us. All of us have experienced some piece of this today, and we have to, we must acknowledge this. Lamentations 5.7. Our ancestors sinned and are no more. And we bear their punishment. You know what that is? That's a victim mentality. What they're saying is we have been victimized. We have been hurt. And you know what? That needs to be said. Some of us say, oh, wait a minute. Time out, John. Victim mentality, that's a devil's mentality. I mean, we can't wallow in our problems and our pain. We can't, like, we got to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we got to do something different. Well, I don't know. Tell that to the Bible. Because these people had been victimized. These people, their grandparents and great-grandparents and political leaders and religious leaders had made decisions like a hundred years prior to this. And now their lives have been blown completely apart as a result of that. And it needs to be said. We just can't go on. If you think you're going to go on with devastating things that happen in your life without dealing with it... You're fooling yourself. You are going to have to deal with it. So they say it. Oh, man, we have been really, really victimized. We've talked about it in weeks three and four. Hezekiah made decisions. He was the king of Jerusalem. He made decisions 100 years prior to the collapse of Jerusalem. And everybody around him had been radically affected by that. Now, with that being said, and it has to be said, and it's biblical to say it, that won't get you. That won't get you to hope. Like acknowledging the hurt and pain, which must be done, must be done, must be said, must be acknowledged, will not take you to hope. Something different has to happen. And here is the turning point of all that. You need something else than acknowledging your hurt and pain in order to go from hopelessness to hope. Look what uh, Lamentations chapter 5 verses 15 and 16 says. Joy is gone from our hearts. So in other words, we acknowledge the fact that we've been victimized. Is it going to bring us to a place of joy? No. If you want to be in a land of hope and a land of joy and a land where you feel like, oh yeah, everything's flourishing, then just saying I've been a victim isn't going to get you there. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. And it goes on to say this, the crown has fallen from our heads. This just means the glory, right? That's what a crown represents here. And then here it comes. Woe to us. For we have sinned. We have sinned. Wait a minute. I thought you just said you didn't sin. And everybody else around you sinned. And that's why you become a victim. Why are we saying now we have sinned? We have to acknowledge what we've been through. We need to acknowledge our past and what's been done to us. And all the crap that has flowed down from the decisions that other people make. Don't try to say, oh no, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. And then also don't wallow in it. This is what these verses are saying. And they're really important. But we have sinned. Here's something that we need to remember. God responds very powerfully to humble hearts. And when they said, hey, we haven't sinned. We're just victims. 
Okay, that needs to be said. But now you have to come in with a humble heart before God. And rather than just pointing, they did it, they did it, they did it, they did it. You got to remember, there's three fingers pointing straight back at you. And that is what's happening here in this communal prayer and lamentations. You know what we, you know, people made really bad decisions. You know what? I make really bad decisions. You know, people made selfish decisions and caused my pain. I've made selfish decisions. I've caused other people pain. At some point, we have to own our stuff and admit it. God responds powerfully to humble hearts. God responds very, very powerfully to people who speak the truth about themselves. You're not perfect. And I know all all of us say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. No, no, no. We sin. I mean, we are so quick to say other people are sinners, right? Other people are X, Y, and Z. We need to acknowledge the fact that we've got to own our own stuff and not walk away from it. I am so quick when somebody does me wrong to just, you know, trash them or say something about them or point the finger. It's a hundred percent them. It's a 100 percent them. And there's an arrogance there. Because there's no culpability on my part. It lacks humility. And God is not going to move in that arrogance and that pride. I have to say, you know what, me, you know. I have some culpability. I've made some decisions. God responds very, very powerfully when we do that. Now, I want to show you a picture. You all tell me if you know who this person is. Anybody recognize this guy? Does anybody know his name? David Goggins. David Goggins. So, you know, I've seen, you know, this book. I think it's called Can't Hurt Me. I've seen it uh, on Amazon and um, I do a lot of reading. So, like I see how many people are like making reviews. Oh my gosh, like 100,000 reviews. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but 100,000 reviews is a lot of reviews, everybody. And they're like all five stars. And I've seen it for well over a year, just tremendous amount of reviews. And finally, I broke down and says, I have got to read this book. Well, I actually, I'm audible in the book, so I'm listening to the book. And he's got somebody reading and he reads. And anyway, so it's, 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 it, 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 it's really interesting. This guy grew up in Buffalo. Any Buffalo Bill fans in the house? Okay. No, no Buffalo Bill fans. All right. Uh, Very good. So uh, this guy grew up in Buffalo. And apparently in the late 70s, like roller skating disco was a big thing in Buffalo. I've been in this city all my life. I never knew it was a big thing. But apparently if there's anybody here from Buffalo, it was a big deal in Buffalo in the late 70s to go roller skating, disco, dancing. His father was a complete maniac. His father was a great businessman, but a total maniac, right? Like he beat him senselessly. He beat his brother. He beat his mother. He was just terrible, terrible person. Very successful as a businessman. He talks about like Rick James. And he, does anybody remember Rick James? One hand over, two hands, two hands. Rick James, like this place, this is called Skateland, was so popular. Like Rick James would show up. O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson, uh, running back. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> Show up. Anyway, just this dude went through so much stuff. I mean, totally had to mess his life up. And he admits that. And he, he speaks it right out front. He says, you know what? He, he couldn't as he got older, like in his 20s, and he becomes a Navy SEAL and all, all this kind of stuff, right? He still has met. You know what? He still wasn't over it. He thought he was over it. Everybody, that trauma that you've been through, that suffering you've been through, the things that have been done to you or the things that you've done and you've experienced, that's up there in that amazing mind of yours. And you either speak it and deal with it 
or it's going to come back and keep haunting you and haunting you and haunting you. And he talks about that. Now, he says something at the beginning of the book, just so we wouldn't know. Oh, just by the way, somebody on staff told me, hey, John, sometimes when you talk about these books, people actually go and read them. So uh, a lot of language. So don't come and lot, I'm telling you now, a lot of language. All right. So um, he tells us right at the beginning of the book, he says, just so we don't, he said, you have got to own your stuff. That's coming from a guy that was victimized like crazy. He said, you know what? So many bad things happened to him, but you know what? Him admitting that so many things bad wasn't going to get him from a place of hopelessness to hope. Wasn't going to transform his life. He had to say, he had to look in the mirror. He calls it the accountability mirror. I had to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I've made decisions. Everybody, God responds powerfully. Have you done that? Have you done that? And it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard if, if you know, you're in that place where you feel victimized and you've been hurt and you've been, it's going to be so hard to do it. But man, this is what they do in Lamentations. And when I go through stuff in my life, there is something that rises up in me. I don't want to do it. I'm 100% in the right. I'm not wrong at all. It just rises up so powerfully. But when I have finally broken down and said, yeah, God, me too. There are things that I've done. There's things that, and it's, it's more than saying, oh, I'm not perfect. Because we all say that so easily and we don't mean it. You know what I'm saying? It's just something we say. God, I have made decisions. I have sinned. I have hurt people. I've been selfish. These things. God responds in a very, very powerful, powerful way. He talks a lot about the mind. A lot about the mind. It's so important. And when we hear this, because I've been in church all my life. When you hear stuff about the mind, we're like, oh, wait a minute. There's like books out there that say, think your way to being a millionaire. All right. And some of us like, yeah, that's... and. We think, that's crazy. How can you think your way to a millionaire? That's completely nuts, except there's a little bit of truth in there. Because it is about a mindset, and he talks about that. Now, everybody, let me tell you, this Bible here, this is the original mindset. Because it says in here that we should have the mind of Christ. It says in here that we should not dwell on stuff that's not taking us to the place of hope or transformation or the life that God wants us to have. Instead, we should have the mind of Christ. So when you read all these mind books about there, like think your way to health and wealth or whatever it is, something like that, you've got to know there's an original book that talks about the pure way to think your way to what God wants you to be. And it's right here. May you have the mind of Christ. So he begins his book that way. Now, I want to end this thing today by talking about how lamentation ends because it's really important. I want to come back to what I said in the beginning. This is not like some false, crazy hope. This is founded in in historical fact. Okay, here we go. Lamentation chapter five, verses 19 to 22, okay? It says, why do you always forget us? Okay, this is how it is. Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old. And then check out this line. Unless, unless God, you have utterly rejected us. That word to reject is a word that's used. I've said this before from, from Leviticus. Unless you have utterly, you're utterly despised. You're disgusted with us and are angry with us. So rejection and anger are the two major things going on here and beyond measuring. Some of us feel that way. We feel like God has rejected us. God is disgusted with us. That God is angry with us. That God has left us. God has despised us. Now. Hebrew scholars say this word is very interesting, unless you have utterly done it. A lot of scholars, ones that I really like, say that is a nuanced word in Hebrew and could be said this way, could very well be said this way, but you have utterly rejected. It's not unless, no, it's like, no, you've done it. You've done it. Everybody, Lamentations chapter 5 is very different from every other chapter 
in the book of Lamentations. It is a defiant, a defiant communal prayer to God. Where would they have got that idea to do something like that? I want to show you this. Everybody heard of the stages of grief? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief. All right, very sound, been around a long time, been around many, many, many decades, right? Tried and true, these five stages of grief that are here, scientifically proven to be true, that we all go through them, that you better go through them. If you don't go through them, you're going to shipwreck your own life, all that stuff. She wrote it in a book uh, back in the 60s on death and dying. Here it is, stage one, denial. Stage two, anger. Stage three, bargaining. Stage four, depression. Stage five, acceptance. Does anybody know how many chapters in the book of Lamentations? Five chapters. And what is chapter one about in Lamentations? It's about denial. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. You know what chapter two in Lamentations is about? It's about anger. Anger all over the place. Very, very angry. I'm very angry. Chapter three in Lamentations, bargaining. Now, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Dr. Ross, wrote her book just a few decades ago. Lamentations was written like 3,000 years ago. I'm just going to continue. Lamentations 3 is about bargaining. Lamentations 4 is about depression. I don't feel like getting out of bed. Why should I ever hope again? And then Lamentations chapter 5 is anything but acceptance. This is where you divert. This is the radical difference. Because Lamentations chapter 5 is a defiance prayer. It's like we are not going to accept this. So the tone of the Hebrew that is here. It's like, God, there's no way. We reject hopelessness. And the question is, where did they get that idea? Um, let me show you a couple rewords that God constantly talks about God in scriptures this way. He is the redeemer. He is the restore. He is the renewer. The church I grew up in as a kid, I grew up like, you know, don't care for the, don't really care for this planet. Like this whole planet's going to burn. It's over. It's going to blow up. It's going to burn. Don't, it's, it's just over. It's over. God's going to blow it up. He's going to take all us away to heaven. Everything's going to be great, but don't care about this. That is fundamental. Not only is it not the picture that you are given in the book of Revelation, but it's fundamentally not God. Because what is God in scripture? He's a redeemer. Some of us feel like God's done with us. That's not who God is. God is never done with you. God is never done with you. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. God is not a destroyer. God is a restorer. It's all over the place. God is the one that's famous for bringing dead things back to life. You got this guy, Joseph, in the book of Genesis. He's in a pit. His brothers hate him. God says, I'm going to pull you out of that pit and you're going to live again. And then, of course, there's Jesus, stone cold dead in the tomb. And God says, you are, you're going to live again. Jesus is walking around again. Why? Because the one thing that God wants all of us to know is that God is a restorer. So you're sitting here and say, oh my gosh, can God ever bring back to life this, this thing, this dream, this hope, this, all this? God's saying, yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can, work, I, can, I can cause that to live again because this is who God is. Lamentations chapter 5 is a verbal assault on hopelessness. It is a rejection of this fifth stage of grief. They are not going to stand for it. They are saying, no, we don't take it. We're not going for it. Now, where did they get that idea to do that? We are told that Isaiah, who was the prophet, Isaiah, huge prophet in the Bible, everybody. He was the guy that was talking to King Hezekiah. So a hundred years before the city was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem, you got Isaiah and he goes to King Hezekiah. He's like, hey, do this and do that and pray and seek God. And God's going to save the city. And, uh, and this famous historian, William McNeil says, it is the most important event in the history of the world. The city of Jerusalem was saved. Then King Hezekiah made some really selfish 
selfish, sinful decisions. Isaiah comes back to him and says, Hezekiah, because of your decisions, people are going to suffer terribly in about 100 years from now. I mean, it's going to be horrific suffering. And what does Hezekiah say? He says, as long as I'm good, that's all I care about. And so what happens? It, it's destroyed. Now, Isaiah, along with saying that he's going to be destroyed, he also says this, and this is where it's important to you and me. Starting in Isaiah chapter 40, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Starting in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah starts saying there's going to be hope again. There's going to be comfort again. Lamentations begins with there's no comfort. Isaiah 40 begins with comfort, 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 comfort my people. I'm going to comfort them. And Isaiah says, even though the city's going to be destroyed, it will live again. It will rise from the ashes and live again, just like your life, just like your dreams. That city is symbolic of your own life. Look what Isaiah 41 says. I have chosen you and I've not rejected you. Remember how Lamentations ends? You've utterly rejected us. Isaiah says, oh no, oh no, God hasn't. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected you. So do not fear. I am with you. Don't be dismayed for I am your God and I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. They're saying like, God, you forgot us. And Isaiah saying, God hasn't forgotten you. God's going to take you by the hand and he's going to lead you out into a new beginning. One filled with hope. God's going to cause where there's things that are dead to come back to life. Now, the music team's going to come out now. Uh, the music team's going to, here they come. They're going to come out and they're going to help because the, yep, they have, a, they have a fantastic song called Promises. And they're, they're going to lead us in this song. Uh, that God is never going to let you down. He's going to be with you and you can count on God. God's not false hope. And I'm going to describe something to you in just a moment that uh, is really impossible. I'm going to ask you to think about what in your life seems impossible. And I'm going to ask you to compare it to the his, this historical fact that's like totally impossible. And I'm going to ask you to compare the two things. And I'm going to remind you in just a moment... We're going to take these sheets of paper and I'm going to ask you to hope again, whatever is important to you to put down on that piece of paper. Now, I want to read this last verse and I'm going to tell you this story. This last verse from Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah is the mere opposite of all the hopelessness of Lamentations chapter five. This is what the eternal one says. The one who does the impossible, the one who makes a path through the sea. Why is that important? What does the sea represent in scripture? It represents a place where nothing can live. Like nothing can live in the sea. There's nothing but death and misery and suffering and agony. Nothing can live in the sea. And God's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. God can do it for you. God wants you to hear that. You're thinking, oh, there's no way. God says, yes, there is. Yes, there is. There's some things you got to do along the way. We got to be honest about what we've been through. And we got to be honest about that humble heart. Oh God, I too, I too, humble heart. But then trust and put your hope in God. Now, you think your situation is impossible. Here is how the city of Jerusalem got rebuilt. Because it was totally demolished by the Babylonians. Which is modern day Iraq. Totally leveled. Every stone torn down. Not one bit piece left. Kind of like some of our lives in this room. We feel like every stone of our life has just been decimated. That was the city. Lamentation says that there was nothing but darkness and desolation and jackals were running all around the city. In other words, it was bad and it was hopeless. We are told this in the book of Ezra, that the king of Persia who destroyed Babylon, who is now the superpower, the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, he says in the beginning of the book of Ezra in the Bible, he says, God moved on my heart to send the Jewish people back 
and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple once again. God has, he says this, appointed me to do so. Everybody, you ready for the impossible? Where is Persia today? Iran. Okay, so let's do it again. The king of Iran. The king, you think your situation is impossible? The king of Iran was so moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I want to rebuild this city of Jerusalem. And I want to rebuild this temple for Almighty God. I am sending the Jewish people back to do such a thing. I'm giving them a letter so that no, everybody knows. Don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. I want this city to be built. You think your situation is impossible? The king of Iran. The king of Iran rebuilds the city of Jerusalem. And I've been there. It's full of life. And that's what God wants for you. So the music team's going to come and going to help us sing this. You can stay seated. You can stand up. You can write on a paper. You don't have to write on paper. Whatever you want to do. But use this time. I'm going to pour out some serious stuff on my paper. And when I'm done, I'm going to walk over that wall over there. I'm going to place it in the wall. You feel free to do whatever you want to do, okay?